0: Good morning, friends. Good to see you today. Trust that uh, you've been blessed already. And my hope and prayer is that now as the Lord speaks to us through his word, that you will be challenged and encouraged at the same time. So good to have you here. I want to ask you as we begin today, um, whether or not you think that God truly knows you. Do you think that God knows you as well as you know yourself? Do you think that to that depth of knowledge? I mean, I'm sure you know or have some idea uh, that he knows who you are. But what I'm asking is, is something different. I'm asking if he knows you personally, if he knows your likes and dislikes, he knows what makes you tick, he knows what you struggle with, he knows who your friends are, he knows the same things about them, does God know you to that degree? Or does God just know, you know, okay, there's a bunch of people down here in this room. and You may be able to open your Bible and tell me that I can read you a verse here that says that God knows me. Like Luke twelve, seven, Jesus said, Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you're more valued than sparrows. Okay, see that God, God has the hair's on my head number, and he, he values me more than birds. All right, fine. But is God's knowledge of you personal? Personal. Like you value your closest friend and their knowledge of you, their acceptance of you. Jesus said in Matthew six thirty-two that God knows all of your needs, He knows what you struggle with. He knows the things that you need, whether it be health or finances or, you know, companionship. In Psalm 139, we read that God knows everything about us. He knows when you got out of bed this morning, the exact second. He knows when you went to bed last night. He knows where you've been every moment of every day of your life. He knows where you're going to be every moment of every day of the rest of your life. We read that we can't go anywhere without God knowing exactly where we are. We also discover in Psalm 139 that he knows what we're thinking about. He actually knows what's going to come out of our mouths. Don't you wish you knew that? (laughs) Save you a lot of headache, wouldn't it? Right? But God knows those things. God knows so much about you. He knows what's going to actually come out of your mouth five minutes from now. So God, in fact, does know us. And we, we gain from other places in Scripture that not only does he know us, he, he loves us. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody who knows us loved us? Yeah, well, God knows us perfectly, intimately, and yet loves us. We're studying the Gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, would you open that there to the Gospel of Mark, first first chapter? If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. You can use that. But the Gospel of Mark was written to Christians who were living in Rome in the first century. And they were going through very difficult and uncertain times. Uh, the reason I chose to preach the gospel of Mark to Sun Valley Church was because I think that our lives are pretty similar to the lives of those in the first century. Maybe not as intense in terms of persecution, but in terms of, of disjointedness, in terms of the chaos that we're experiencing as individuals and as a group of people, it's very similar to what was going on in the first century. So I thought, you know what? We need to hear Mark's message on this matter. And so I chose this book. But Mark's writing to a group of people that's not all that unlike us. So when you're in the middle of life's biggest struggles, you need to know, like those first century Christians living in Rome needed to know, that God knows me. He knows my circumstances and he loves me. He knows me, knows my circumstances, and loves me. I think that's a critically important point. But beyond that, more than just caring about us, knowing us, caring about us, does this God, is this God able to do something about my circumstances? If Mark is presenting Jesus as the problem solver, the chaos solver, can Jesus solve my chaos? I got got an extra measure of chaos, can Jesus handle that? Is the question I think you'll discover after a little time in the gospel of Mark the answer to that question is yes he can that's what I want to show you today so in this first chapter we are currently on verses 29 through 34 all the way up to verse 28 Mark has covered a lot of territory he's he's made sure that we know the identity of Jesus and his credentials, so what, who is Jesus, and what gives him the right to be involved and in, intimately in my life. His identity and credentials, this is, this is what the whole first half of this chapter is about. It's not that Mark didn't think that the nativity story was important or that the genealogy of Christ would help us in some way understand Jesus and God more. Certainly that would, that's why it's included in other gospel accounts. Mark has other fish to fry. He, he's got other things to emphasize, which is why he moves so quickly through the ministry of Jesus here in only 30 verses. We find ourselves, it seems like, halfway into Jesus's ministry, and we're only through the 30 verses of this whole book. See, but Mark, again, he's writing to affirm the identity of Jesus Christ and give us His credentials so that, when he presents Jesus to us as the solution to our chaos, we'll believe him. We'll say, I can buy that. That's why Mark's using this approach to his gospel. Let me read for you, starting in verse 21, because I covered that last time we, I preached here. And I'm going to read all the way through 34. Just kind of give you a sense of, of the context, okay? Starting in verse 21, Mark wrote, And they, that is the four new disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Jesus, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there were in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they were questioning among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Now, uh, we're going to be looking at, particularly, verses 29 through 34. Follow along as I read these verses. And immediately, verse 29 says, He left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So Simon and Andrew lived in this house with their mother-in-law and Peter's wife. Simon was Peter, okay? Okay. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is a great story. I hope that you are encouraged by this story. And I want to do my best to clearly communicate it to you. There's two parts to this uh, passage, verses 29 through 31, and then verses 32 through 34. Two different groups of people, two different things happening. What I want to do is I want to, I want to divide this, the rest of the sermon into two parts. First, the Lord of the Gospel, and then the path of the Gospel. You'll see that in your notes if you're following along and taking notes. And the first section of the sermon called the Lord of the Gospel really deals with Jesus' identity and credentials again. Remember, why is Mark presenting Jesus, his identity, his true identity and his credentials? So that you'll believe him so that you'll follow him, right? That's why Mark's doing this. First, let's look at at the authority that Jesus has or what authority Jesus has. If you remember back to the baptism, do you remember what happened in the baptism of Jesus? It, It said that the Holy Spirit descended from heaven in the form of a dove and landed on Jesus. And it was communicating that this is the Son of God anointed to be the savior of the world for the kingdom of god this is what happened this this holy spirit of god descended in the form of a dove landed on jesus right at the end of his baptism and then what happened a voice from heaven everybody heard a voice from heaven that said this is my son in whom i am well pleased so we have the evidence of the holy spirit the confirmation of the father saying this is god my son this is the second person of the Trinity. He's here to be king of my kingdom. He's here to solve your chaos. That's his true identity, all right? That's what we see right off the bat. So what, we, what Jesus has authority over is God's kingdom, all of God's kingdom. Secondly, we see as we continue to read down like verses 12 and 13, that Jesus has authority over Satan. He encounters Satan in the wilderness where he's tempted where Satan wants him to just make one slip so that it would upend the entire plan of God. If Jesus would have made one slip, what would that have meant? If he would have made one mistake, one sin, he was not God. (laughs) So that's what Satan was after, trying to upend, but Jesus said, no, that's not gonna happen. He demonstrated authority over Satan. And not just over Satan, but over Satan's weaponry. And what is Satan's weaponry? It was the same then as now, temptation, right, sin. Those kind of things. Jesus demonstrated authority over those. He said, get behind me, Satan. It is written. So he's showing authority over God's kingdom, over God's enemy, over the enemy's weaponry, sin and temptation. And then we see in verses 16 through 20, he's showing authority over Satan's focus. What is Satan's focus? I've said this to you a few times in the past few weeks. Satan's focus is you and me. Satan wants to upend us. He wants to destroy us. His focus is doing that very thing, starting with Adam and Eve in the garden, continuing up till this very morning when you got out of bed. Satan's objective is you. And it was here. So Jesus walks into Satan's territory after the temptation in the wilderness and pulls out four guys. He says, you, 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 and you, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, you come with me. There were no questions. There was no reading of an itinerary to make a decision. They followed Jesus because he said, You follow me. So he showed authority over Satan's focus, people. And then we read down into verses 21 through 28. We discover that Jesus has authority over Satan's armies, the demons, the demon world. He says, What goes, even in that world? And it says, The people were amazed. This guy controls evil spirits, unclean spirits. Who is this? Mark is saying, This is God. This is the guy who's in charge of everything. All right? That's his true identity. This is what Mark wants us to understand. So, Satan, sin, temptation, and people, which are the cause of much of our chaos, Jesus has authority over all of them. Those are his credentials. Identity and credentials. Now look at, now focus in with me on verses 29 through 34. What do we see in these few verses that Jesus demonstrates authority over? Disease, illness, right? He says, fever, be gone. And what was gone? The fever. He touched Peter's mother-in-law's hand and she was well immediately. This is what Jesus is demonstrating, authority over diseases. As you read through the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus doing this regularly, healing people, bringing them back to full health, even from death to life. He raises Lazarus from the dead, right? Jairus' daughter he raises from the... Jesus is able to control disease, illness, and death. He has authority over that even. Talk about a credential. I want in on that. I wanna be connected to him. That's Mark's desire, that's Mark's objective, is that you will believe and follow this Jesus. So why, why is Mark and the other uh, gospel records um, recording Jesus' healing so often? Well, there's a few reasons, and I wanna share a couple of them with you right now. First of all, these guys, Mark, And Matthew and Luke and John record Jesus' healings to show that he has authority over the effects of sin. Not just over sin, but over the effects of sin. Whatever sin has, whatever problem sin has caused in your life, and each of us has personal experience with sin causing problems, right, in our lives, Jesus has authority over whatever that is. He has authority over the effects of sin. So why was Jesus' ministry so full of healings? Because he wanted to show that he had the power not only over Satan and his demons, but also over the physical effects of sin. He came to solve chaos that was caused by sin and the curse. What kind of savior would this be if he couldn't handle that, right? Jesus has to demonstrate, which Mark records him doing, power over sin and its effects, including fevers, sickness, disease. And, of course, you know that all these things are a result of sin, right, in the garden. When God created the heavens and the earth and humanity, he didn't create sickness and disease with them. That came as a result of sin, falling into sin and the deterioration of our human bodies and the effects that came with that, which we see as illness and sickness. And so these events that Mark's recording here prove to everyone watching them Peter, Andrew, James, John, Peter's mother-in-law, Peter's wife, whoever else was in the room, that Jesus is God. He controls disease. He throws out evil spirits. He, He is God in present. He's with us right now is what these guys were saying. Look what he's done. Look what he's capable of doing. And so Jesus healed and threw out demons regularly to simply prove that point and to preview his coming earthly kingdom in which Satan and the demons would be bound. If you read Revelation, you've seen that. And the curse of sin would be mitigated. And ultimately, in the eternal state of Jesus's kingdom, ultimately sin's curse would be removed. But Jesus here, as he does all these healings, all these miracles, is giving evidence that this is actually happening. So he performed miracles not to provide free health care or to gather a large crowd singing his praises he preached to validate his claim to be the king of the universe the Messiah the one that God sent into the world the savior of the world to undo all the damage of chaos caused from sin that's what Mark is wanting you to see that's what Jesus is wanting you to see so his miracles leave no doubt about his authority over demons and disease, over spiritual and physical creation. His miracles showcased his power to conquer sin, conquer Satan, confirm his ability to both rescue people from sin, death, and hell, and raise their bodies from the grave one day after, they, after they've died. What good would a Savior be if he was unable to rescue people from sin and the chaos that's caused by sin? Would you want a Savior like that? I, I'll save you, but I really can't do much for your sin problem. No, of course not. The reason we run to Christ is because he's able to save us. He's able to forgive our sins. He's able to deal with our chaos. It would be like the people in 1 John that, that come across someone that has a need. And they say, oh, go, be warm, be well. John says, that's not love. Love is actually meeting their need. Love is actually providing food, clothing, and finances so that they don't have to struggle anymore. It would be the same with God, right? Same with Christ. If Jesus just stood there and said, hey, I really love you and care for you, but this is out of my league. I'm not sure what to do with your problems. No. He comes as the solution, capital T-H-E, the solution to our chaos, to the effects of sin. He's actually able to do something about this chaos. He not only loves you, cares for you, knows you perfectly, He's able to do something about all those things that are upended in your life. So let's look at the situation closely here in these verses. It says that after the synagogue, in verse 29, immediately as he left the synagogue, that's Jesus left the synagogue, he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with their two friends, James and John. That's the setting, Um, and of course, what's happening here, just so you know the context, uh, the synagogue meetings usually ended around noon, kind of like church. They end around noon. At noon, everybody's doing this kind of thing, right? Well, it was the same back then. Jesus the, in the synagogue ended around noon and they walked around the corner. Church history says that Peter lived very close to the synagogue in Jerusalem or in Galilee and in and Capernaum. And he was just, they just walked from the synagogue to Peter's house. And there lie Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick with a fever. Most commentators, of course, and I don't know if you're into these kind of details, but most commentators believe that these disciples were very, very young teenage people. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were very young men. Peter must have been a little older than the youngest of them because he was married, right? But we need to know also, in their culture, they married in their mid-teens. It was not uncommon. So it was fine for Peter to to have a mother-in-law, just like it's fine for you to have a mother-in-law. Some of you may say, "Ah, I take issue with that, but um, it was okay. This was normal back then. In Luke's gospel, okay, so we're in Mark. In Luke's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, we read that this particular situation that that uh, Peter's mother-in-law was dealing with was a high fever. In other words, there was a serious infection somewhere in her body causing a high fever. It was a serious situation. And this concerned Peter and his wife. And so Peter told Jesus about her. It says, now Simon's mother-in-law, verse 30, lay ill with fever and immediately they told him, that is Jesus, about her. Hey Jesus, you wanna come to my house for lunch after church today? And could you just do something with my mother-in-law? She's ill. Would you help, please? It's kind of how this went, went down. All right? So what does Jesus do? Jesus deals with the chaos of disease caused by sin in Peter's home. He takes her by the hand, lifts her up, and as that's happening, her fever leaves, goes away. She immediately got up, it says here. And began serving the group that had arrived from the synagogue. Now, why did Mark record that part of it? Why did Mark say, and she got up and served them? Why not just leave it at, and she got up, she was okay. Because Mark wants you to know that when Jesus heals people, he does the job completely. When, when, when Jesus deals with your chaos, he does the job from beginning to end. How, how did you feel the last time you had a fever? Did you feel like getting up and serving those in your house? Or were you pretty much demanding that they served you? When you were sick with fever, you weren't quick to jump to your feet and serve people that were in the house. Even after you recovered from fever, you were still a little bit Taken by the fever, weren't you? You're still recovering. Still a little bit, you know, slow to recover. Not Peter's mother-in-law. She gets up immediately and is completely healed, as if she never had a fever. That's Mark's point. Jesus completely healed her. Her flu was gone. The reason I say that, I just told you why Mark said it, but the reason I emphasize that is because we come across modern day faith healers, at least self-proclaimed faith healers from time to time. They're on the TV, right? You see them on the internet. What are, what's typical of modern day faith healers? Don't they have a lot, of, a lot of qualifying to their power? A lot of, if you're gonna be healed, you have to have a lot of faith. If you don't have faith, then I'm really out of power. You know, you've got to match my power with your faith. And we hear that. We hear other things, including, well, I need you to show a commitment to your desire to be healed by sending in a $100 gift. And then it'll work, right? All these qualifications. What qualifications do we see here in Jesus' healing ministry? The fact that she was sick. That was it. (laughs) You're sick, I'll heal you. That was Jesus' qualification. No demanding faith. In fact, there was only one uh, miracle in Jesus' lifetime where he required faith of the person receiving the healing. Every single other time, the people who were receiving Jesus' healing didn't believe. They were unsaved, unconverted, faithless people, and he healed them. Jesus didn't require faith. He didn't require financial donation. He healed her because he loved her. He wanted to solve her chaos. He wanted to solve Peter and his wife's chaos. And he demonstrated his love by doing something about what was bothering them. He healed her. Fully. Right then and there. Wow. Why did he do this? To show that he had authority over the effects of sin. Secondly, why all these miracles recorded? To demonstrate the compassion of Jesus towards people. The God of the universe, friends, cares about you. The details of your life, the struggles you're facing, the things that are causing you pain and heartache. God cares. The Son of God came and demonstrated that. Look, I care. I know what's going on. I, I have compassion for you. This this event is recorded in Mark, in Luke, and in Matthew. In Matthew's account of this event, he concludes this event by quoting Isaiah. Matthew quotes Isaiah, and this is what he quotes. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our iniquities or our diseases. He himself, God himself, took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. What's the point? God has compassion for people. He cares about you. He cares about all people. I want you to just turn real quickly one page over and look at verse 41 in Mark chapter one. Look at page 41 where this is seen so clearly the compassion of god towards people people like us people who get the flu kids who are sick so i'm going to start in verse 40 and a leper came to jesus imploring him and kneeling said to him if you will you can make me clean listen to listen to verse 41 moved with pity Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Compassion, interest, care to some literal reject in Jerusalem society, in Galilee society. He was a leper. No one wanted lepers around. They were all rejects, all outcasts. And this guy said, Jesus, if, you, if you're willing, taking pity, he said, I am. Be clean. I love that story. That story, I think, was used in, in uh, The Chosen. You remember that? Have you guys watching The Chosen? That's in there, that story. It's showing the heart of Christ, the heart of God for people. He wants to remove the effects of sin. And in order to fully remove the effects of sin, in order to fully redeem men and women from these devastating effects, what's, what has to happen? Not just a touch, not just the wave of a hand, not just a physical healing, but Jesus would have to suffer and die for us who were so affected and devastated by sin and the chaos that it brings. Jesus would actually have to suffer and die. For us, the chaos of sickness, sorrow, death won't be permanently removed until sin itself is defeated. Once that takes place, then we will see eternal, unending solution. But through his death, Jesus paid the penalty for sin, our sin, and through his resurrection, he conquered death. So by dying and rising from the dead, Jesus defeats both sin and death for all who will simply put their hope and faith in him. Do you trust Jesus? Have you laid your life at his feet? Have you embraced him with all your heart? That's the first step in total healing. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter two, verses 14 and 17. Since therefore the children, that's us, human children, share in flesh and blood, He himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. God had to take on human flesh, it says, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. Jesus had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see what happened? God became man, he humbled himself, he took on flesh just like ours. He became a servant, as it says in Philippians 2, so that he could suffer and die. You see, God can't die. The only way God can die is what? If he assumes human flesh, which happened when, Jesus became, or when God became a man in Jesus Christ. Then all of a sudden, the potential of God dying becomes a reality which is required for your sins to be forgiven, for your sickness to be healed completely forever. So, what happens? Jesus takes on flesh, he becomes like one of us so that he could die, pay our penalty that we owed. He transferred our guilt to himself and then his righteousness to us. What a switch that was. God is compassionate, he cares, he loves. He came to earth for this specific reason, to help. To solve our chaos, He has great affection for us. He came to be with us. This is an ongoing theme in Scriptures, a desire of God to be with us, His people. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Who's that? That's God, that's Jesus Christ. Thus says the one who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. This is what he says. I dwell in a high and holy place. I am way up here, transcendent in every way. And also, this is the important part for us, and also with him who was of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God exists beyond, transcendent, above us. And yet, he also comes down to dwell with us, to be one of us, to to walk with us through life, through the hard times. God is there. That's why Jesus came. Revelation 3.20. You guys all know this verse. Behold, this is Jesus speaking, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. He's knocking. And this verse is written to Christians. A lot of times we hear this in in the context of those who are outside of Christ and we use this. Hey, God's knocking at the door of your heart. Why don't you let him in? That's not what the Apostle John was recording here. Jesus was saying, I'm standing at the heart of the door of those who have already embraced me, asking to come in and fellowship with, become friends with, get deep with. Will you open to me? And a lot of times we stand on the outside a little bit distant from God, not really believing he really wants to do that with us. That he really wants to be friends with me? Yeah. Yeah. You see, Mark is portraying Jesus as the solution to chaos. He's given us his true identity. He's given us his credentials. He's presented us the king of the universe, the creator of all things, the sustainer of everything. He is the victor over the enemy in every way. But he is also one who comes to us in our homes, like into Peter's home, and heals fevers, He enters into our lives on the most practical, fundamental level when our children and spouses are sick with the flu, and he lovingly touches us and is compassionate and cares and solves our problems. God loves. God cares. He meets needs. He's right here knocking, waiting, anxious to connect with you. At the end of Hezekiah's life, I was reading through 2 Chronicles in my uh, daily reading plan. And last week I was reading in chapter 32, where it was talking about King Hezekiah's life in Israel's history. At the end of King Hezekiah's life, it read this at the end of chapter 32. God left Hezekiah to himself. And God left Hezekiah to himself. Can you imagine a worse fate and God left, insert your name to yourself? I don't want that. I I want to open the door when I hear him knocking. I want to invite him into my life, into the life of my family. I want him to make a difference in me. I want to be changed by him. I don't want to be left to myself. You see, Jesus continually offers himself to any who will answer the door and invite him in. After Peter's mother-in-law was healed, it said they spread the news or the word quickly, but no one showed up until after sunset. You see that there? That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick, but the healing took place right after church on, Sunday, on Saturday morning. Why the delay? Why six hours of dilly dally? Well, because it was the Sabbath, and these were Jews. And Jews didn't do things on the Sabbath for fear of breaking Sabbath law. And so they waited, they heard the news, and they're like, you know, as soon as the clock struck six at sundown, what ended? The Sabbath ended. They could pick up everybody who was sick and race them over to Peter's home. And they did, and they came in droves. They brought all their sick, all their demon possessed, and said, Jesus, how about us? So the whole city was gathered at his door. They saw what Jesus did in the synagogue. They saw what Jesus did, or heard what Jesus did in Peter's own home. And they came in droves. Mark wants you to catch what Jesus is capable of so that you'll bring your friends in droves to Jesus. And here's where we get to the second half. I want you to see here in verses 29 through 34 the path of the gospel. In other words, how does the gospel get from you to your neighbor? How does the gospel get from you to your children? How does it get from you to your coworkers? if you've embraced Jesus? How does it go from here to there? What we read here is it travels on the path of relationships. I want to point this out to you as I close today. I think this is spectacular, what we see here. You know, one of the great values of this book, the Gospel of Mark, is its use in evangelism. If you're a little bit shy about sharing Jesus with people or or uncertain about how to share Jesus with people or maybe why to share Jesus with people, this book clears all that up for you. This book is designed by God the Holy Spirit to help you share Jesus with your friends, family, and neighbors. Our world no doubt needs Jesus, don't they? They need Jesus just as much as you need Jesus. They need Jesus just as much as Peter's mother-in-law needed Jesus. And all these people who were gathered at the door needed Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus because everybody's racked with the chaos of sin. Aren't we? We all need Jesus. And Mark's written his gospel to get Jesus from you to your friends who need him. He's presenting Jesus, true identity, giving credentials, saying, this is in fact the chaos solver. Take Jesus to your friends. There's no other hope for our friends and neighbors. The Gospel of Mark helps us share Jesus. I think it seems realistic that these four newly recruited disciples who were just fishing a day before for a living radically changed in a moment when Jesus said, you're coming with me. The first thing they see or witness is Jesus casting out a demon in the synagogue. The next thing they see is Jesus healing a deathly ill woman in their friend's home. They're excited. I can understand that. I think it's easy to see. I think there was probably a quickly growing sense of enthusiasm Even camaraderie with these four guys saying, I think this is an important guy. I think this is really, really good for us to be a part of this. Maybe this is the Messiah. They, I think, would have thought the possibilities were endless here. But more than anything, after having been personally called by Jesus, after seeing his powerful teaching and his casting out of demons and the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, they wanted their family and friends to meet Jesus. They, they, they wanted, they said, This person, Jesus, can help my friend Bob. He, he can, he, actually, I'm sure he can straighten out my teenage kid. This is what they were thinking. They were convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that he was presented to be. And they said, my world needs this guy. And so these few verses here teaches that Jesus and his message, the gospel, travel on the path of relationships. It doesn't get to those people who need Jesus unless you take them there, unless you take your friends to Jesus. Andrew, Peter's brother, was always repeatedly in the gospels taking people to Jesus. You've got to meet this guy. And that's what Mark wants us to do. In fact, that's why he introduces Andrew first. Because Andrew was notorious for taking people to Jesus. And he wants us to take people to Jesus. He wants you to take people to Jesus. First, know Jesus. Trust him, embrace him, and then take all your friends and acquaintances and family to him. Bring them here to Sun Valley Church. We'll talk to them about Jesus. Bring them into your small groups, groups, into your homes. Show them Jesus. What I want you to see here is there's two specific groups. In verses 29 through 31 is group 1, and 32 through 34 is group 2. Let me end with this, all right? I want to unpack these two groups for you. Uh, Look at verse 29. It says, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew. That's Peter, Simon Peter and Andrew. But he used the word house. The Greek word for house is oikos. Alright? Oikos. I think I have that on the overhead someplace in case you're wondering how you spell it. Transliterated at least. This is how you use O-I-K-O-S. Oikos. So, Based on that word usage that Mark decided to use, we have two oikos's here. One intimate and one a little bit less intimate. One small and focused, one larger with more people. Oikos one, oikos two. So what is an oikos? It's that group of friends and family that you are close with. They know you, you know them. You love them in spite of them, and they love you in spite of you, all right? They're they're determined to live with you through the Christian life. That's oikos number one. It's that primary circle of influence. In our day, it's those who are closest to you at this church, those who you share a faith in Christ with, those who you share a desire to become like Jesus and to grow into his likeness. Those who are in your small group, those who you interact with, at Sun Valley Church, those who you live with, pray for, small group with. It's your God-intended oikos, that small group of intimate friends who trust one another and believe that God has the best for you in mind. Oikos number one is the group of people with whom you practice the command to love. And I mean practice, because we always fail, don't we? Fail to love one another as we should, which is why we practice. Now, I'm not sure why doctors practice things. I hope it's not for that reason, but as humans, especially as Christians, we need to practice loving one another because we get it wrong a lot. And so we practice accepting them for who they are, receiving them as they are in spite of their foibles, to live the Christian life with. This is the first oikos in verse 29 through 31. Peter, Andrew, their friends James and John Peter's mother-in-law and Peter's wife and maybe some other siblings. He doesn't mention them. That close-knit, tight, loving group is oikos number one. All right? <clears throat> the latest research out today, I just heard this this past week, tells us that this generation that, that is growing into adulthood right now, They're their early 20s, maybe mid-20s, late 20s at the most, This generation is the most depressed generation in the history of man. The most depressed generation in the history of man. It's no coincidence that it is also also the most isolated generation in the history of man. Even in the church. The church has become a gathering of isolated people. The instigator of chaos, and who is that? Who's the instigator of chaos? Satan, right? The enemy, God's enemy, our enemy, Christ's enemy. He has done a great job of isolating us from one another, particularly of late. Our lives have become what have become what uh, we see on our phones. OK, For example. This is my life, right here. There's my wife. there she is. See? That's her. I have a relationship with this picture on my phone, right? No. This is the picture. Uh, I have a list of friends on Instagram and on Facebook, right? That's my, No! Those aren't real friends. They're not following you because they're your friends. They're following you because they want you to follow them. Right? This is how Instagram works. This is how Facebook works. Like me. Please like me. Right? This is make-believe. <laughs> this is what the world has done to us. This is our new reality. This is what Satan would love to be, your only reality. Why? Because you're isolated if this is your reality. You are by yourself and a screen. That's your reality. No interaction with the people of God. No exhortation, no encouragement. It's just pictures and words. Satan loves that. (laughs) This technology... Is robbing us and our generation of our humanity. The COVID pandemic is another way that has played into our depression and isolation, hasn't it? We're required to isolate. We're mandated to isolate, to separate, to cover up. So COVID has further dehumanized us. We now think that it's That not being able to see half of someone's face is normal. No. The latest statistic on those who have walked away from the church during the pandemic is as high as 30%. Let's just go ahead and say 25%. 25% of the church walked away from the church at the beginning of the pandemic and has not returned what's going on there? Isolation is what's going on there. Satan's victory is what's going on there. This is what we're seeing. 20 to 25 percent of the church not in corporate worship. They claim that they're still at church because they're watching it online. Newsflash, that's not church. Church has always been, has, has always been about what? The one another's, right? You can't one another by yourself. You may try, but that's called mental illness, all right? You can't one another by yourself. We need one another. The church is designed by God to be involved in one another's lives. There are 35, at least 35, one another's listed in the New Testament that make us a church. We pray for one another. We serve one another. We admonish one another. We, one another, one another, one another. This is how God makes us more like Christ. This is how we become more godly, grow in grace. This is how we become what God wants us to be. By being in community. Being in an intimate oikos where people know you, love you, forgive you, and say it's okay. If you'll do the same for me, I'll trust you with my life. Will you trust me with yours? That's what we see. You see, Satan loves us to be isolated, to to be dehumanized, to be depressed, because he knows that if he can transform our reality and separate us from one another, the battle is won for him. You see, the Christian life is not about that. Oikos number one is that intimate group that keeps... Reality in focus. But in verses 32 through 34, we see a second oikos, a larger circle. Friends and neighbors of Peter's, his friends and neighbors of Peter's wife, and Peter's mother-in-law, friends and neighbors of James and John, people they knew in the community. That's the larger oikos, the larger circle. They were connected somehow to everyone in the first oikos. There are concentric circles that I want you to see here. I want you to see it on the overhead. Is that up on the overhead right now, those concentric circles? Your most intimate, helpful, spiritually growing group is oikos number one. Oikos number two is a different group. And those that make up oikos number two are predominantly people who don't know Jesus. Those who make up oikos number one all know Jesus. Okay, number two, very few know Jesus. There may be some in there who know Jesus because they go to a different church or you know them from high school and they, they know Christ. That's fine to have a relationship with them. But your primary emphasis, your primary focus of your time spent getting to know people and trusting people is in your number one oikos that's from this church. People connected you intimately in Christ, in this church. All right. So we have this very important picture here of how to live out the Christian life, of how to get Jesus to those people in our lives that need him. Through relationships, your goal and God's desire is to bring those who are in the second oikos, the larger one, into your first oikos. You want them to know and love Jesus and experience the forgiveness of sin that you've experienced. Right? This is such an important heart. Your Christian life is lived with those in your first oikos oikos, so that you can share Christ with your second oikos. You can actually join forces with people in your first oikos. Say, hey, let's have a get-together at your house next weekend. Let's watch the, the Mariners game or the Seahawks game. Let's invite some friends from each of our oikos over and just love on them. And then you're slowly showing them Jesus, bringing God into the conversation, inviting them to your church or your small group, letting them see Christ lived out right in front of them. So my question to you, and I'll I'll end with this. My questions to you are simple. How are you strengthening and building up your first oikos? Are you connected in a substantial way to anybody in this church? Or do you come on Sunday and leave on Sunday and say, see you next week? Do you have any connections, significant, real connections with people in this church who God has designed to be that group of people called your number one oikos? When's the last time you invited someone from this church into your home for for dinner? When's the last time you spent any leisure time with someone in this church at all? I'm not talking leisure time is not small group, that does not count. All right? Leisure time is not standing in the lobby after church. I'm talking about you going to a game, you going shopping, you going hunting with somebody from this church for the sake of deepening that relationship. When's the last time you had them to dinner? When's the last time you spent any leisure time with anybody from your number 1 Oikos? I'll let I'll let the Lord do the confronting with you now at this point. Secondly, when's the last time you invited anybody from your second Oikos to see Jesus in any way through an act of love of kindness with the intent intentionally Showing them Jesus. When's the last time that happened? You see, friends, you see what Mark's getting at? <laughs> Mark wants, Mark's convinced that Jesus is God. That he's the solution to our chaos and that everybody needs him. And he's telling you and me how we can introduce Jesus to people. People who need him. I pray, I've been praying throughout this week that you would spend time nurturing and building up your first oikos and then taking opportunities within your second oikos to show people Jesus, just like Peter, Andrew, James, and John did with everybody at Capernaum. Jesus is something special. Do your friends know that? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for leaving that primary oikos of heaven and coming into our oikos, our world. Thank you for inviting us, bringing us into your oikos to know you, love you, and be loved by you, having our sins forgiven. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to deal with our chaos. I pray that that we would with one another. Those who are members of the body of Christ, those who are connected here at Sun Valley Church, continue to deepen those relationships so that we may become more and more like you, Savior Jesus. I also pray that we, in this first oikos, would go outside our our areas of comfort and, and share Christ Jesus with the rest of our world. For those who are at our work places, for those who who are at our schools, for those who are our neighbors. Lord Jesus, use us. Use our relationships with those in this community of Yakima to bring about your purpose in exposing them to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the solver of chaos, the lover of man. Bless us now, Father, as we go our way and work on these things with the power of the Holy Spirit. In his name we pray. Amen.